Daniel Achampong is very much his own man. And I'm grateful to say my new friend. He was most recently an entrepreneur in residence at MIT Design X, where he co-founded a marketplace platform. Daniel and I share a relationship to the Kennedy School because that's where he earned his degree in public administration. His connection to his family, especially his dad and mom, are dynamic to how he lives and what he believes. And their influence, in great part, has made him the man he is today. Enjoy. Welcome, Daniel. Oh, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here, Ms. Janice. Oh, my goodness. The honor is mine. And, you know, while I do want to learn about your early years, because I'm really intrigued with how you got to be who you are, let's start with the work you're doing right now. Give us a short explanation of what Visible Hands VC is and how did it start? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's been, it, it's just an incredible journey. But what we're building at Visible Hands is that we're uh, we're a venture capital firm with an accelerator, but our focus is that we want to identify incredibly talented women and folks of color who are building venture backable technology companies. And you know, we thought about we thought about this um, in in a, in a really really detailed way, and we said, you know, if women and racial minorities make up about seventy percent of the U.S. population, why is it that they receive less than ten percent of investment dollars? Right. And this is just the math that doesn't make sense and also is a huge missed opportunity for the country, for our cities, for economic growth, for our GDP. So we wanted to do something about it. And there for me, there are also personal elements with that we can get into it um, later in the conversation. But, you know, just thinking about it on a macroeconomic level, but also to the micro level, the, the changes that we can make in our in our community could be incredibly impactful when we back and support diverse founders. Well, you know, we can get into it right now because I mm -hmm. personally, I'm nodding in agreement. I'm not just saying mm -hmm. that I'm listening. A large percentage of our family listening right now are female and many of our listeners are people of color. So yeah. you shared these statistics around the 75% of the population receiving yeah. less than 10% of VC yeah. funding. Go ahead and dive in deeper right now on why you believe this is the case. And, 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 and you know what, Daniel, let's talk about how you and others are working to provide more opportunities to address this. We're not just going to share the challenge. We're going to share the solution. Yeah. Yeah. You know, let me, I can, I can take a step back even to, um, you know, pull the thread of also the personal element of why this is important to me. Yes. So, you know, I, I was born in Ghana and I came to the U.S. as a kid. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and New York is a special place for me, Brooklyn. Um, you know, my dad himself was an entrepreneur, so I saw the hustle, the work that it takes to be an entrepreneur. And when he came to this country, you know, for him, and I, I asked him, I was like, he and I were having a conversation the other day about why he decided to make the step to come to the U.S. And his answer was that so that my kids could have a better education. But for him, education was opportunity. So with my dad, I mean, it doesn't matter what happens in the world. If you are sitting with a book in your hand, he would just he will encourage you to do more of it. Um, so you know, my 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 parents for me show the the importance of access to information, access to education, and access to resources. 
So, you know, from Brooklyn, I was very, very fortunate to have gotten um, gotten into college through the Posse Foundation. And that Posse Foundation is a, an incredible scholarship um, program that identify kids from all around the country who have the skills, that they're doing incredible work in their communities, but a lot of these kids can't necessarily afford to go to colleges. So what Posse does is that it brings the students together as a cohort. Right, that you go to campus not just by yourself, um, but you have nine other people with you that that is your family, your brothers and sisters to go through the experience with. And, and I bring Posse up because it's connected to some of the model that we took to influence visible hands. So, you know, throughout that experience, it was just amazing to see when you go through an experience with a group of people that the, the, the network, the bond, the support system becomes really effective to push you through the journey. And through Posse, I was recruited to go work at Goldman Sachs. Um, I, 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 I had a great experience there, worked in asset management, incredible mentors. And it was for me this first exposure to see how, you know, something, that, something as important as, uh, you know, as small as, an, uh, as interest rates, can have an influence on the price of coffee, right? And we're seeing where right now we are at a historical place of interest rates and inflation. And it was just a great learning experience at Goldman and also seeing how money moves in the world. And was later- well, let, mm -hmm. let me jump in there because yeah. you're talking about seeing how money moves in the world. The US yeah. debt ceiling, the, the US debt ceiling is in front of the news and a lot of people's minds across the yeah. globe. Do you care to talk about that a little bit with respect to VC and, you know, what's frustrating you the most about how bitch of funding is being handled around that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think what's happening right now there, you know, I, I, there's the fundamental part of it is that when you when you owe people money, you have to pay them. Right. And that's the fundamental basis of lending and as the, the debt ceiling conversation is happening right now, I think that's something that the government fundamentally needs to do pay borrowers, um, pay people that they're borrowing money from. So the debt ceiling too also, there's an economic impact that if we don't meet these obligations and we don't come up with a, a clear solution for it, the ramification in people getting access to make, um, to make payroll, um, you know, actually being able to make sure that the government functions, the, the, how, um, is going to impact the market. And right now, even in the stock market, we're seeing the volatility, the, the movement and the, the frustration that's happening there because there's uncertainty in the system right now. So the debt ceiling is an important thing for the government to figure out, but also it's connected to every layer of our society of money and how money moves in a system. So on the venture side, Ms. Janice, is that you know, venture, how it works is that you borrow, you, you get money from someone who believes, say, hey, I believe you can use this capital to go invest in ideas and founders and businesses who can create value and expand that value. And with, when the value is expanded, that, that money could also be, you know, given back to whoever gave it to you in multiple. So when there's uncertainty in the, in the environment, it creates concern that if I give money to someone, is it actually going to have an impact? Is our thing actually going to move forward? So right now there's uncertainty in the government right now that's impacting the business cycle that needs to be figured out.
And I got that incredible learning from a place like Goldman Sachs to understand mm -hmm. how the world and the market moves. Now from Goldman, uh, go, go ahead. I was going to ask you, uh, uh -huh. uh, but I want to hear what you're saying because I was moving. I want to stay where you are yeah. right now before to say. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and from my, my time at Goldman, I was recruited to a private equity firm um, called Summit Partners, also an incredible place that I learned. And, you know, when private equity is part of the spectrum of, of investing. And I remember just taking a look, a step back and saying, wow, this is, these are huge pools of capital that's out here in the investment world. But where is all that money going? Right. You take your head up and you say, if I look at the early stages from friends and family investing, and I can go into detail on in all of this to pre-seed to seed all the way to the public market, the stock market, all the money that's being invested a lot, most of that money from when we look at the data is going to men and mostly white men. So it got me frustrated. And I said, wait, I have three sisters. And if any one of my sisters were to go out and try to build a company, the chances of them becoming su successful become significantly diminished by virtue of gender and color. And that's what the stats is telling us. And that doesn't make sense. So my partners and I, we said, look, we got to do something about this. And we looked at the spectrum of venture, of, of investing and said, well, it's hard to just come in and plug in in random spots if we don't actually address the top of the funnel, the beginning stages. We have to expand that top of the funnel where we, we have more diverse founders building companies. So we built out Visible Hands as that platform, as that early stage investment um, firm where we identify great diverse founders who are building these venture scalable technology companies. And we support them not only with money, but with community, with um, mentorship and specific resources about what they're building. So let's stay here a little bit longer. Yeah. Your data informs the story. Data is Absolutely. not story. This is the conversation I was just having last evening at a keynote right. I gave, and it's a conversation that I consistently give. And, and I'm proud to be called the data queen in my <laughs> Data is not the story. It That's informs right. the story. The your data says 70% of the U.S. population is mm -hmm. made up of women and people of color, and 10% mm -hmm. of VC funding is... Yeah provided to these people that's the data yeah. then is the story that then is the story daniel that there are systemic issues in the established vc world that prevent women and people of color from improving their lot at a faster rate or at a broader spectrum I, yeah i think you know there there are inherent um biases in decision making right and when you know, and when we even look at the the decision makers in venture, the decision makers in business, that you know often is men and often is is white men. So in venture, looking at the you know the the, the data as well, Ms. Janice here is that the managing directors or the people who are actually making decisions on where the money is going, again, it's less than ten percent of that are black uh, black men or diverse um diverse investors 
So then the decision-making then also is not diverse. And there's a bias, I think there's a biasness that goes on, right? In the sense of, if you see a certain framework of what success looks like, that hasn't included a certain group of people, the assumption is that that is the only framework that works. So we want to challenge that. And in fact, we believe, and that's part of the reason why the name, you know, for Visible Hands came forward was that, you know, that there, if we look at the, you know, the economic model of that everybody is included in this process, actually the data shows that not everybody is included. So that when we include it, that's when we begin to truly push our economy, to push our country to a place where we're maximizing the talent, the skills, and the resources of everybody. So money, let's think about it this way. Mm -hmm. um, numbers are black and white, but money isn't. Mm. I think numbers are black and white, Money is green, but the decision well makers, in a, in yeah. the USA, mm -hmm. but it's purple, it's mm -hmm. blue, it's sure. gold, it's that's gold, right. You know, uh, so 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 building off of that and those yeah. last couple of conver conversations we just had, what challenges, Daniel, do you foresee in the venture capital landscape uh, going forward, especially when it comes to fostering DE and I? Yeah. Well, I'll say there, I, I'm actually really excited about the future of venture because right now we're seeing so many diverse um, investors and diverse founders who are coming into the fold. And, you know, a lot of them have, are my friends, we're peers, and we're sharing um, deals, we're sharing resources together. So that gets me really excited that not only is it more diverse founders coming into the fold, but it's also really collaborative. Um, so, you know, I think there there will always be challenges, but I'm I'm so optimistic about where it's headed. Yeah. You know, one of the mm -hmm. things I shared last evening, uh, I mentioned the keynote, is that never before has there been a, uh, a, as rich a time for yeah. resourcing and inclusiveness around, uh, you know, economic uh, uh, circumstances. And, you know, the audience was kind of, and these are very edu educated and established executives uh, yeah. and they kind of lean back first of all that I you know who identify as black and female is saying this and secondly that I'm saying it at this time of such disruption you know in the in the world and I encourage yeah. them that disruption is a good thing discordance may not mm. be but that we are at a really good time because you know, it's when we are in the worst of times that we seek for the best of times. And so right. innovation and thoughtfulness occurs differently than it has. Um, when you're looking at uh, traits and founders, what are you yeah. considering about them in working with them? And, and let me just put it this why I'm asking you this. About 48 yeah. hours ago, I got back from Egypt and um I uh, stopped in Qatar naturally, right? And, you know, it was a combination of business and attending a wedding. And these are seriously moneyed people mm -hmm. who look more like you and I do than they look like the people making the decisions at Goldman Sachs would have looked like, you know, mm. 20 years ago. Um, so I guess I'm saying that whether it's tech driven, purpose-driven 
are just, you know, people are becoming more humane, despite what we see in mm -hmm. a political environment. Um, is there is there a different appreciation or are we just running out of customers who are white men? What What's going on? What, what are the traits you're looking for in founders today? Yeah, for me, the my, my I have a, a mental model about about um, who I look for to invest in. The first one is that I I want to I want to see that the person has a deep deep understanding of the, about the problem. In fact, you know I will venture to say that the idea an idea in itself just an idea the value is zero. And you know this could be a hot topic and you know people might challenge me on it, but I really do the idea is worth zero. Right. The value of the idea comes in the execution, right? So to, to execute, there has to be a deep, deep work and understanding of what is the problem that I'm solving. And I think sometimes people run to solution before truly understanding the problem. So the first thing I look for in a founder is, do you deeply understand the problem? Have you spent enough time with the people you say you're going to solve it for? Then the second thing is that to understand the problem, then what is the customer validation process that you have gone through to show that there's a willingness to try the thing or there's a willingness to buy the thing that you want to serve or provide? And then lastly, um, for me, is that, you know, has this person also really, really gone through the process of putting together a strong team? You know, because you have to be able like, to identify what are the weak points? What are the areas that I, I'm just not good at? to bring the people along with it to <clears throat> ensure that we have a strong team to execute. So those are key points of my mental model. And then there are different parts about the product in itself. But when I really dive deeper is the person, the execution, and also having a clear understanding of the customer. So that's brilliant. And none of it had mm -hmm. color on it. Mm -hmm. Are there company are there companies in your portfolio that you're able to mm -hmm. talk about that you're excited about around those yeah. same principles? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can I can go through a list, but the one of the um, companies that immediately came to mind is that it's a company founded by you know black women who are who have back two MIT computer science PhD students and two Wharton MBAs. And when I, you know, when I, I, I first met them and began to learn about what they were building, it surprised me, Ms. Janice, that people wouldn't give them $30,000. And I was like, wait, let's, let's pause right there. If we were to say we have four people who are two MIT computer science PhD students in computer vision and two Wharton MBAs have background in Amazon and all these things. And they're building a computer computer vision product. Would you be willing to support them if we didn't know that they were either women or black? And the chances are it will mostly be yes. But just the the challenge of them raising thirty thousand dollars surprised me. So we were one of the first institutional investors in them, and the company is called Parfait. Mm -hmm. They there, there is a really incredible model where they're leveraging computer vision to support people to purchase customized wigs. And, you know, again, I have three sisters, so I know the cash flow that comes from wigs. 
right? And I, <laughs> yeah, that's not right. Not just the cash flow, Daniel, but the flow. <laughs> the flow. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's beautiful. So, you know, when I, I, I met, this is so brilliant that we're using deep tech to, to, to address a need that has incredible cash flow. So when mm -hmm. we back them, I mean, they've done, they're doing so well um, that they raised 5 million bucks with, uh, with upfront ventures and Serena Williams and, and just incredible ventures who came in to close out that $5 million round. But just th those things like, why, why did it take so long? And, um, and 5 million, may I say, um, no, I'm not going to say it. I'm going to suppose it since this mm -hmm. isn't my area of expertise. May I suppose that while 5 million sounds incredible beyond 30,000 and one would ask why were they only asking 30,000? Was that mm. a smart thing as well? Which is a separate question. Mm. The, the, the supposition here is that 5 million was a like, a nothing compared to the actual uh, 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 value of the industry they're interest, yeah. interested in. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. And, and it's an industry where not only does it expand beyond women of color, uh, yeah. because trust me, I go to Beverly Hills and the majority of women getting done ain't black. Um, mm. The, and the women who are getting hair aren't black and they throw theirs away more quickly than black women do as well. So they buy more. Um, but it also is an industry where men are getting into it now as well. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. So, so it was short-sighted yeah. about the potential of what they're doing where if, 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 if these women are enabling you to use some type of virtuosity or, or technology mm -hmm. to personalize or customize wigs then they are they are doing something that will enter into the healthcare arena as Spot well on. As, you know it's a beauty and health uh industry and they are also doing it in a way where people became more comfortable slash dependent and expectant on mm -hmm. the ability to shop from home during these last two plus years that we've That's all right. So that's Jen, not so, for them, and I don't know. I feel like you're on our, you're on on our investment committee. I mean that that's that was it, right? That the the beachhead market certainly identifying people, uh, women who are using wigs. But if we think about the potential growth of the market, it's not just beauty; it's healthcare. And so the expansion was was for us. It, it made a lot of sense. Um, and all, just backing also experts who are able to go out and execute on this. Um, so. You know that our portfolio companies are, are those are the examples where incredible background they're executing and identifying you know that we can there's specific things that we can support them to go out and build yeah and you know daniel as you stated earlier i'll para uh, quote you uh <clears throat> a great idea does not necessarily a business make That's what right. trends, what trends are emerging technologies are you particularly excited about getting involved with? Yeah. Um, so for me, there, there, there's when we I look at our portfolio, even though we're industry agnostic, there are a couple of verticals that we're spending time in, such as B2B SaaS, fintech, health tech, um, some creative tools. And of course, right now, AI is it will become the embedded infrastructure across 
you know almost every every startup. Um, the the industries also coming from my finance background is that I think fintech is really fascinating. In fact, you know, in a in a in a past few months, we've seen three major banks in the U.S. go under. All right, mm-hmm. and this shows that there's a lot of disruption that needs to be had within the financial industry. So, you know, fintech, I think, is going to be continuously be an interesting landscape. Um, And then when I think about that in the context of the unbanked and the underbanked, that that makes up about a quarter of the U.S. population. So then how could we use tech and innovative ways to support the unbanked and underbanked? Because that is a pretty huge population. And 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 when you speak to a quarter of that population being mm. unbanked or underbanked, we typically think about within the current way banking is occurring. Fintech exactly. is bigger. Fintech is bigger, I think, Daniel, than how we currently bank. Um, I serve on the women's leadership board at uh housed out of Harvard. And mm. maybe three Four years ago, it was prior to COVID, we had uh, some young women students who were presenting their businesses to us. And uh, the majority of them were fintech businesses. And one was so simple, and simple doesn't always mean easy, uh, but one was so simple. It was the idea of, and and I'm getting to the idea of how banking can evolve or spin off as well. And I sat there thinking, this is pod banking. You know, Mm. we are all she was interested in doing was creating a virtual or a device, you know, app opportunity, app driven mm-hmm. opportunity for people who work in this country, but have financial needs back home. The majority, mm. the majority in the number of them talking scale of customers now were people who earn under a hundred thousand dollars. Yes. The majority mm. earn under under sixty thousand, I think. You know, and so that's a particular banking dynamic that, yeah, if we can remove the need for people to process, and it can become an easy solution for them to bank back and forth home. Yes. Um, then not only is it good for the U.S. because that becomes money that is identified and taxed, it yeah. also is good for back home because now you've got people who have the education and the financial ability to take care of people who don't have it, wherever back home is. Yes. And I thought that was a brilliant technology. By the way, she's yes. doing quite well with it, even though she hasn't you know, fully branded it forward. Uh, it was an idea for her community yeah the explosive as a pod bank this is yeah. what we do we don't we don't support your real estate needs we yeah. don't support your investment portfolio you know oh we're not a commercially driven bank per se yeah. but we're going to support the individual who has a need to do and i thought that is so hot that's so spot on because the cost associated with yeah. legacy traditional banking is people heavy, isn't it? That's spot on. In fact, you know, I as you're saying, I, was, I wonder if you're talking about one of our portfolio companies. Because I will say if I am, because the you know it was confidential. But go ahead yeah. with it because yeah, because um we so we invested in a company from uh, by by a Harvard student. It's called Tang App, and um and Tang. So Rebecca 
who's the founder is a really good friend of mine. She and I went to, we were both at Harvard together and I just saw how well she was executing and all that. But to your point, it was a similar, similar model where exactly it, that the, the remittance fees are so expensive. And she, she, her customer base focus is, um is, is starting from the Philippines, but it costs about a month, uh, uh, one, you know, one month out of 12 months fees to send money back home. So a 12, you know, one twelfth of the money you make, just imagine in the US, you look at your sal salary and it's one twelfth is gonna go to fees. That's that's almost robbery. So she came up with this model where she said, we're gonna create an international model like Venmo and make it very simple for people to transmit money back home and, and also do it at a fee that actually makes sense, really low cost. And she's just crushing it. Um, so those are some of the ideas that I'll, I get really excited about, about fintech that changing the way that we, we not only move money, but that also how we support communities, um, who are, you know, who, who need this new layer or this different way of thinking to help them grow their businesses, take care of their families. And, and also by the way, some of those, some of those communities are right here in the U S from where that's you're right, sitting, you know, that's right. So listen, with, with, with the advantages of working with your organization, those founders and entrepreneurs who are interested in learning more or applying to one of your accelerators, yeah. um, what does the process look like for them? Yeah, so you know we keep our process pretty simple. That was an application process on the front end, and then there's, a, there's an interview. Um, and then from that interview, we make our final decisions. But, you know, we but the framework of how we're making the decisions are some of the things that I mentioned is someone who really have a deep understanding about the problem, that they have a clear customer validation process. They have a compelling product that solves a specific pain point, And then they also have a clear go to market strategy of how they're going to solve it. So those, you know, those four things where we're, we're, we, we hone in on um, and, you know, we have actually our application that's going to close for our third cohort. Uh, on May 29th. So, you know, I encourage people to apply, but we are always, I'm always open to speaking with entrepreneurs. I'm speaking with founders all the time. And and the band of trust they may uh, believe because every process an entrepreneur goes through in seeking yes. funding is one that can be very draining personally, as well yes. as uh, disappointing to the business. Is, is, is the band of trust that you make to them that the decisioners are going to, understand them culturally and not read uh, Ill, Ill messages from science. Let me, let me tell you what I'm talking about. I was speaking with a banker uh, associated to a very large uh, bank yeah. and he was sharing how one of his team had, teams had interviewed this person. They're doing very well now mm -hmm. who they turned down. OK. Mm. And I said, but you guys read him wrong, because one of the things you said to me was uh, the, the it was a man. Uh, he was so uncertain and slow in his answers. You're traditionally talking to people who have rehearsed and had coaches on yeah. making their pitches. When you're talking to a black man from the South. He may not, if he's not gone through a traditional business school, yeah. be better thoughtful and truthful when he's speaking from a slower pace. 
than mm. someone who's fitting it out because they're yeah. very well rehearsed. That's right. Being well rehearsed versus being thoughtful and slow to respond is not always the best indicator of yeah. the value of the product or service somebody is putting Spot forward. On. It may be a cultural difference. I know when mm -hmm. I was growing up, Daniel, uh, we were taught it was disrespectful for a child to look a grown up in the eye. Mm. Later, I learned that that was read as being not trustworthy if you mm. couldn't look someone mm -hmm. in the eye. You know, so that band of trust you offer people who are coming in to pitch for uh, VC funding, does yeah. it include that you are going to take into account their cultural presentation may be an impact to how they're saying it, but not necessarily to what they're going to deliver to market or better yeah. yet, or better yet, an asset to what they deliver. Yeah. Wow. That is, I think that is so spot on because, um, you know, when we first went through our first and second cohort, we realized that we also needed to check ourselves, right? And 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 we we are, we we're so thoughtful about that because someone could be a really good writer in the application, but it doesn't mean they're going to deliver well in an yeah. interview. Or it could be vice versa, not a good writer but excellent in pitching. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we really took those things into consideration. That well, how do we ensure that we're checking our biases? Um, from this, these evaluation standpoints. But that's why the framework that we established has allowed us to be like hone it on frameworks and never, and we, we, we tell our team this, that don't make assumptions. That if you have a question, if there's something that you're not clear about, let's reach out to the founder and have a conversation with them. But we're not gonna make an assumption about you know, the way they speak or the way that they wrote, we're not going to make assumptions. It's truly reach out to get a, a sense of what they're building and, who, you know, who they are as a person. So that is so spot on that we really check ourselves on that. Yeah, because if you had not seen Ted Turner, nor yeah. known of his background, you would have thought that you were making a loan to an older Black man. Mm. Ted Turner spoke the way the man who raised him spoke. He did not speak the way his father spoke. Yeah. You know? And so if you were to listen to him, he may not sound like a good bet. But he yeah. did some dynamic things, you know, uh, in, in, in the world of business. The, yeah. All of that said, one does need to come prepared for some formality in the process. Yeah. What does that look like? Many of the people listening to you right now will be VC seeking. What yeah. do they need to be ready for in that process? Yeah, you know, I'm going to connect it to uh, just the, the recent point that we just made, Ms. Janice, about, you know, um, even the, the about Ted Turner. There was a founder that I came across, and this was in the pitch competition, um, and he had a speech impediment. And they, so, you know, when, when he was preaching, it took him longer time to present, but I got to tell you, he was the most prepared out of anyone who pitched incredibly prepared. And, you know, he was also, he came from this deep medical background. He understood every aspect of what he was trying to build. And in the end, he won the pitch competition at $50,000. And, you know, those are some of the things that we realized we can't use you know, arbitrary things to make decisions. Um, but we have to see the person for who they are 
and respect their own excellence. So, you know, to, to, to the point, the question that you just asked is preparation. You know, for me, when I meet a founder, I really dive deep into the problem. And once I get a sense of that they don't understand, I mean, and you can tell, right, when you meet someone who know, truly understand what they're building as, and when you ask them like, so who is the customer? And they don't say, oh, I, I spoke, I, I shared this with my cousins and some friends and my, you know, my sisters, like that's, that's not your customer, but people who say, I have actually gone out and I spoke with X amount of people. They've given me these insights. And from these insights, we were able to run th these tests and it didn't work, but then we went back and tried to explore a little bit more. I mean, that is incredible level of research and preparation that for me gives comfort. And it's, and as an investor, the money is not my money. I have a, I have a responsibility to folks who are entrusting me and my partners to make a decision that I believe will create value in the businesses, the companies that we're investing in. So then I need to ensure that the companies that, and the founders that I'm backing are really good at what they say they're gonna do and that they're gonna do it well, because I have to report it back to my investors. And I, I, I give founders that perspective of that, you know, this is collaborative work and we have to do this, this together. And to do this, I also need to trust you. You need to trust me. And a lot of my trust will come from level of preparation and execution. So Daniel, beyond understanding the product and, you know, necessarily understanding the market, yeah. do, you, do you find any potential uh, particular areas from underrepresented uh, 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 entrepreneurs who are seeking funding that they need support or they need education to prior to coming in and mm. making that ultimate pitch? Are there, are there things they need to know that yeah. may be different based on coming from an underrepresented community? Yeah, you know, I would say this, uh, that... I, and I really think sometimes you know, when we look at the data, we also see this, that sometimes diverse founders come in and they don't ask enough, mm. all right? That they, they, they almost under ask and they're really good at selling. It's like, ask for more, you deserve more. Um, ask for what your business needs. So I'll, I'll, I'll encourage underrepresented founders that when you are in the room, you belong in the room. You, you are at the table, speak and let your voice be heard. So ask for what you need. And, and this is, you know, something that I, you know, there's a, there's a process that I had to go through myself because, you know, the point that you made growing up that, you know, looking at someone in the eye could be seen as, like, as a sign of disrespect. I remember growing up for me, when an adult was talking, you didn't speak because the adult was talking and, when I started my career um, at Goldman, I was in a conference room with some of my peers. We were all analysts. And a friend of mine was challenging managing directors in the conference room. And I was like, wait, what? Like He's challenging the boss. I had not seen anything like that before. And I was just so afraid to speak my mind. So those experiences made me realize that, yes, I do have a voice. I could speak. I could challenge it. I need to come prepared and know that, 
you know, if I have these points, say the points. There's a line that I, I heard from, um, from a song that closed mouths don't get fed. Mm-hmm. That, and that's true. So, you know, through those experiences, it gave me this, um, the, this encouragement that I have to ask for what I need and not be afraid of it. Because the worst that you can hear is a no. And that's okay. You're still going to be alive. You leave out no less than you walked in with a no. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So go ask and know that you belong in a room. Yeah, because when you're fully prepared, you can be fully present. And I think we're accustomed to not being welcome. So we don't bring all of ourselves into the room. I'm not suggesting everything you should bring in there either. Okay, you some of your (laughs) (laughs) But I do think that when you are prepared, you can have confidence that you can be fully present. And when you yeah. talk about sometimes people from underrepresented communities don't ask enough, enough can be from two places. Enough can be, as when I asked, they only asked 30,000. Was that really smart? Mm. You know what then? Uh, but um, it can also be asking the questions you need so that, you know, we teach people, I'm in the employment business, mm. so we teach people don't be the only one being interviewed in that conversation. That's you know? right. We, we believe we put you in the right place in front of the right person, but you interviewed them as well to make Spot sure. And, 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 and I would wonder if you might give that same advice to uh, people who are seeking funding. Spot on. I mean, when you're, you're receiving funding from investor, from anyone, that it's, it's, a, it's a bond, is a, is a connection and a commitment. And from, from our side of the business is a long-term commitment in many cases, you know, five, seven, 10 plus years. So, and it does open the veil to continued inspection and continued voice to how you're building your business as well. Does exactly. it not? Exactly. It's continuing and it's continuous. So, you know, for me, the companies that we've invested in, uh, I get updates from the companies and I follow up and I reach out. There's a level of, um, that I also need to understand what's happening with the business. So there's a, level of scrutiny that comes with the 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 capital transaction so it's not just a one-way um process that when you're in, in you're in that conference room you should be interviewing the vc as well mm-hmm. and, and, and i talk about this the same way as as dating right before you get married to anyone you want to truly understand who they are like you want to date them you want to get a sense of personality. What do they care about? What are some of the things that they don't like? The things that you like and all this, you have to experience that. So, and that's investing. That's building a company and you have to go through the process of asking them the tough questions. And, you know, what, how, how many companies have you invested in? What's the relationship been like with those companies? Um, you know, how have you supported them? What are some of the things that you look for in the founder to ensure that is very specific in helping them grow? Like just ask the tough questions. Uh, and and it, you have to feel comfortable in those tough questions because again, it is a marriage and that and marriage is a long time. Do, do, do you agree that it would be important or at minimum permissible to ask during that process Mm-hmm. what they find lacking in you or where their concerns about what mm. you discussed. I yeah. mean, that that opens you up to actually hear perhaps some harsh truths, but it also can paint a clearer picture about how you're leaving that room. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, in fact, you know, for our core positions, when we make the investments, we also have a risk section in our investment memo. And those are hard truths that you want to know as a builder, right? That what are my blind spots? Everyone has a blind spot. Every company has a blind spot. It doesn't matter how big or small they are. So asking an objective perspective, it's actually really, really helpful. And you want to walk out of those rooms to understand that are they actually doing a thoughtful analysis to understand your blind spots and be helpful to help you go through those blind spots. Um, and, and it's a relationship. It's not just a transaction. And when you see it from the perspective of a relationship, I think it then it becomes a really beautiful partnership to move things forward. Oh, you know, I just love what you're saying here. And I think it's going to mm -hmm. be so helpful to so many who are listening. Mm -hmm. um, we, we, we talked about your company and your industry. Let's talk about you. Uh, <laughs> I want to get into your education a little bit. I mean, you've yeah. mentioned before that you believe in taking a multidisciplinary uh, role to learning. Talk a little yeah. bit about what that means. Yeah, I, I just, I feel so, so fortunate to have had incredible um, incredible people in my life who encouraged my curiosity. Um, you know, from my math teacher in 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 high school, Mr. Pachi, who saw that I was interested in math, so he forced me to be on a team called the Fed Challenge Team. And the Fed Challenge Team is that it basically bring high school kids to the Federal Reserve and say, hey, what, come up with a, a, a thesis about what's happening in the economy and pitch it to leaders at the Federal Reserve. And I remember when Mr. Pachi told me this, you know, I was that high school student, I was all about basketball. And I was like, Mr. Pachi, I got basketball games going on. I'm not gonna join this. <laughs> <laughs> and he came to me and he was like, Daniel, if you don't join this, I'm gonna have you get kicked off the basketball team. And oh. you know, there's, there's always that teacher, right? Those individuals in the school who have the authority to say something like that and you believe it, mm -hmm. Mr. Pachi was one of them. So I was like, all right, Mr. Pachi, well, why don't we come up with a deal that I'll come to, you know, I'll come to these, um, these meetings like once a week and see how that goes. Changed my life. I got, mm -hmm. I mean, I began to learn about the economy about the world and this was I was you know in the 10th or 11th grade and I was like wait this is super fascinating that if the Fed Reserve moves this number it releases billions of dollars that trickles mm -hmm. into a bank and then these banks create a process that people are able to borrow money and that the money impacts businesses and it's just the the new life new life right new life absolutely it, it, yeah it just created these like connected pieces like my the synapses were just going all over the place and I was like oh man this is fascinating and I started college in um 2007 so in 2006 was when you know in high school I began doing these things so our thesis was that the prices in the housing market was really high and that nothing goes up forever right so we went to the fed reserve and made this pitch and we lost and in 2007 i'm about to start college and a crisis happened the financial you know the the housing crisis financial market starts tanking and i remember running down the hallway 
to Mr. Pachi's office, like, Mr. Pachi, Mr. Pachi, that was our thesis. We were right. And it's just like opened my mind that this, this is not just a random thing. This is real. So mm -hmm. I, I, I really took it seriously that I wanted to major in economics. So I went to Brandeis, majored in economics and politics because I saw how the connectedness of that is, right? The Federal Reserve, even though it's a is an entity that makes the monetary decisions, it responds to Congress. Congress have to give a lot of the approvals on and also supporting and the appointments of, of who the Fed chair is. So right. it's all connected. So for me, the multidisciplinary learning is that if I understand one, it helps me understand the other and it creates a cyclical process. And the same thing that um I had a I had a teacher also in high school, Miss Yudkov, who, you know, I was, every summer I went to play basketball and similarly, she was like, Daniel, what are you doing for the summer? And I said, you know, I, I just, I go and play basketball. I do all these camps. And she was like, what if you, this summer, um, you try this different camp, it's called Seeds of Peace. And you go and explore um, and meet other kids from different countries. I get to this camp, Miss Janice, and one of those moments that also just shocks you. My first day there, I'm about 14, 15 years old. I get to this camp and a group of kids who were Palestinians were yelling at another group of kids who were Israelis. And they were yelling back and forth. And one is saying, you're terrorists. The other is saying that we're freedom fighters. And they were just like, and I'm, I'm a 14, 15 year old high school student like what is going on here I've never heard of these you know these things I didn't know about global politics and this the camp idea was that if you bring kids from different cultures different regions around the world especially conflicting regions and you foster a friendship and a, and a collaboration I mean we were playing soccer at, you know we throughout the whole process was like we we're playing soccer playing games swimming together eating together we lived in the same bunks that if you bring kids together, it's it establishes at an early age the foundation of peace, mm -hmm. all right? And I remember from that beginning all the way to the last day when we were going home, we were all hugging each other and it was just tears going out, you know, running through every kid's eyes that we don't want to leave. We wanna mm -hmm. stay here. And some of those folks are still some of my closest friends. Uh, and that changed my perspective about global politics. That's when I learned about what's happening in the world. So for me, multidisciplinary learning is critical to just the foundation of what's happening around us, right? Understanding our culture, our history. So I, I, I take that very, very seriously. And that led me to going to Harvard and Wharton to do my joint degree at the um, UPenn and also at the Kennedy School. I love, love, love. By the way, the Women's Leadership Board, where I chair now, is housed out of the Kennedy School. Mm. Um, when you talk about multidisciplinary learning, I think it's really showing the face of your belief to be a truth as we look at how we are establishing regulations and government around, not just at the national level, but international level around tech. How can yes. we make about something we don't understand. And mm. we're facing, I think we're facing what could be a mini crisis with a great solution right mm. now 
in that so many of our elected officials don't understand tech. They may fear tech and that can breed a want yeah. for understanding, but it can also um, create positions based on lack of understanding as well. Yes, yes. I think, you know, the 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 point about, the, I, I do think that a lot of our elected officials don't understand tech. Um, and it, it, there's, there are two things that can happen here is that it can either create um, fear or it can create curiosity. Mm -hmm. And I think there should be an emphasis and more people tapping into the curiosity, right? To say, well, then how do we, how can we understand AI better? That mm -hmm. what, in fact, at the, at the simplest level, what is AI, right? And then how do we use this concept of collecting large quantities of information, large language models that creates multiple analysis to spit an output, right? And trying to understand how these things work makes you, I think information makes, makes us less fearful and it actually leads to innovation and, you know, using curiosity to push that forward. So I, I, I so much agree with your point here that we need to encourage that curiosity to challenge this perspective of fear because this tech is going to continue to change how we live, how we function, and it's better for us to understand it than to fear it. Because if yeah, you understand it, can be it as water. something about it, it. Yeah, it can be as water for us. Yes. It can either <laughs> drown us or sustain us and help us grow. That's right. But we've got to understand the law of water in order mm. to, you get what I'm saying? Yeah, same thing with, I mean, I love you use, you know, the elements like fire, mm -hmm. right? Fire burns and destroys, but you contain it mm -hmm. in a little, you know, mm -hmm. in a little bottle, it mm -hmm. gives you light and direction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very, very important, I think. And when we talk about access to funding, access to education is important. And I believe yeah. that they are mm -hmm. so interrelated in how people are able to turn that great idea into a significant business. Um, yes. Daniel, you've mentioned your mother in past interviews and how important she is to you. She was to you. And you yeah. said that she did get to watch you walk at graduation. Share a few of the main lessons your mother taught oh. you that are sticking with you in everyday life. Bring yeah. her to light. Oh, I, um, I, I, I adore my parents and I'm, you know, my mom is, I get goosebumps, you know, just talking about my mom. Um, she passed away in 20, 2011 when I was just graduating from college but um it's Abraham Lincoln has a quote that I love he says all that I am and all that I ever will be I am because of my mother mm -hmm. um and the just the sacrifices that she made to um you know, just to 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 push me and challenge did me. Did your mother in? Did your mother immigrate as well? She, yeah, she immigrated um, from Ghana to the U.S. a few years after my dad. And you know, my mom was is you know one of those just strong black women. She did not take nonsense from anyone, and she held us to a really high standard. Then she also gave us this incredible level of freedom that you knew you you couldn't break, right? So my mom would say this. She was like, you could do whatever you want, but just don't disappoint me. 
<laughs> so <laughs> it's like, all right, well, then I'm going to try not to. <laughs> um, but it also gave me a lot of freedom to just learn things and try things and travel and explore. But I always knew that it's like, all right, I'm not going to do this because my mom will get really upset or I don't want to. Is this, there are certain things that it gives me boundaries, but boundaries that allowed, still allowed me to explore. She was my biggest cheerleader. Uh, the, uh, the a moment that comes to my mind that was very special, and I'll go to the point about graduation, was um, I had I was applying to, I had just started my job at Goldman, and you got to go take a series exam, which is one of the exams that you, series 66 exam, which was one of the exams you actually need to pass to start the job as an analyst to do trading. And I mean, it was a tough process because at the time my mom was going through chemotherapy. So, you know, I'll go spend time with her in a hospital and then try to go home and spend time to study and then go to training from morning to, after, you know, morning to, you know, early evening, then go to the hospital. So it was like a cycle and really, really exhausting. But I, I just put my head down to try to study. And the day of the exam, I called her and I was like, Mom, I'm really scared about this because I don't know if I'm going to pass. And she was like, I stayed up all night praying for you so that angels will go with you to take this exam. And I, 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 I almost cried in that moment. And I was like, Mom, you should be taking care of yourself. But her care for me, um, it was, you know, it was just only what a mother will do. And I walked into that exam and crushed it. But it was really with the confidence that I am walking in here with an army of angels and like my mom is the general. Um, and that, you know, she's done that consistently in my life. And uh, the the graduation part was a tough, was a tough one for me. I was super involved in my undergrad. I was president of our student union government. Um, and just you know, bringing a lot of people together. And I, I told the president of the university that I really want my mom to come to the graduation, um, but she's, she's fragile. She might not be able to make it. And he was wonderful. He wanted to make all the accommodations to support, to try to allow her to get there. Uh, but the day before her body was just really weak and she couldn't make it. So um, she called me that day and she called me that day and she was like, I am so proud of you. I'm sorry that I can't be there. And, you know, the way that she said it, it was, it felt as if it was the last moments that I was going to hear from her, but it was just here expressing that it was, I was so proud of her for how much she continued to fight. Um, and she stayed on the phone with me, stayed on the phone with me throughout my graduation, even though she couldn't be there. Um, just an incredible woman. And she's taught me so much about my faith, about believing in God. My mom's way of saying, I love you, was God be with you. <laughs> that was her way of saying, I love you. Um, so my favorite verse in, you know, and I'm a, I'm a man of faith. Uh, my favorite verse in, 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 in a Bible that for me, reinvigorates me every time 
is one that she would send me in the mornings is Isaiah 41.10. And it says, do not be afraid for I am with you. And do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will help you. I'll strengthen you. And I'll uphold you with my victorious right hand. And that was her favorite quote. Okay. We're going to give one second for your mom. Yeah. Thank you for being brave and being loving and being caring um, to, to, to share that. Um, we've talked about a lot and there's so much more I could talk with you about. Is there anything in particular you'd love us to cover uh, in this conversation that we've not yet? Uh, this, this is so, so, so wonderful. Um, if you don't mind, there's one more story that just comes to my mind that I it was just a really wonderful moment. Um, when I graduated from Harvard, I was hanging out with one of my really good friends and he and I went for a long bike ride and I graduated in the mix of COVID. Um, mm -hmm. So when he and I went for a long bike ride, we went to his neighborhood to hang out and grab pizza. And as we were about to grab pizza, you know, not a lot of people were coming outside at the time because of COVID, but you know, this is this friend, John, he's incredible. He began to just, just like get people outside and say, Hey, my, my, my boy just graduated from Harvard. You know, it's just a really big deal. And for me, I was just in the process of, you know, I just went through this process. When you're in the process, you're just in the process of getting through school, right? But different people from the neighborhood came up to me um, two people particularly stood out. One was a young man and he said, man, you're the first person that I know who have gone to Harvard. And that was like, I was like, man, this is, this is really meaningful that this is not for me. Mm -hmm. And the other person was an older man in his seventies. His name is George. Mm -hmm. And George approached me and George said the same thing. So from a 70-year-old to a younger man, it's like they both said the same thing. And George said, you're the first person that I'm meeting in my vicinity who have gone to Harvard. And he, George was just so proud of me. Mm -hmm. So as we were eating pizza, George walked away. And he you know, was getting late. And he walked away. And then about 20 minutes later, he came out. And he was holding this necklace. Right. And he gave this to me and he said, I want you to always keep this. And, you know, I, I kind of know George from the neighborhood. I don't really know him that well. And he was like, this necklace is from his mother. Who was really well known in the neighborhood, who just people adored her so much. And he was like, when he walked inside, he felt this feeling for him to give me this necklace. And he said, I am so proud of you. Ms. Janice, he said it the same way that my mother said it. Yeah. And um, that was, yeah, that was a remarkable, remarkable experience. And I've never taken this necklace off. Is, is, is George Black? He's on um, Puerto Rican. Puerto Rican. Yeah. 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 So. Um, are you familiar with the story of the Georges along the railroads? No, I'm not. 
in the United States, and this is during my lifetime, um, many of the porters who worked the railroads along the East Coast um, were the people who were able to bring us information in the Deep South and exchange uh, things like the the Ebony magazines, the Scipia mm -hmm. magazines, you know, the Jet magazines. They weren't sold in stores in the Deep South, uh, Daniel. And so these Georges would bring those kinds of things to mm -hmm. us in the South. Every porter was called George because mm -hmm. they to 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 their to their customers on the train. They weren't important enough to be distinguished by a name. To mm. their customers in the community, they were so very valued because they were overlooked. They were mm. able to bring us things that were not seen by others. So the the, the paradox of that was mm. strong us. But yeah, mm. they could you, you Google it. Google the Georgia oh, that. and you will see That's that. Wonderful. Before we go to four for four. Let me share with you that I firmly believe you will provide funding to a company that will provide solutions to the very health challenge your mother suffered and transitioned. Amen. Yes, that's right. That's right. It's one of my goals. Okay. Well, it's Absolutely. happening. It's yeah. happening. And, 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 and so let's go four for four. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to ask you four questions and yeah. you're going to give four answers to each question. There are no wrong answers. Okay. <clears throat> Your first question is anybody who you would like to have at dinner, you get to have at mm. dinner from history through current. Who's at your table? Oh, um, so many people, but um, I will start with Abraham Lincoln. I mean, of course there's Jesus, but um, I feel like Jesus, yes. And why? Tell us why. Um, but I, I was Abraham Lincoln because Abraham's Abraham Lincoln's personal story I feel like is similar to mine with my mom. Or he lost his mom when he was a young man and went through this journey of self-education. And he loved books. I mean, there was a moment where he was he he borrowed a book from his um a, a neighbor farmer and it rained and the rain destroyed the book. He felt so bad that I believe he worked a whole summer as uh you know as a compensation for this for the book. So the the self education piece is something that I also admire because of you know to the point about learning and also the connection to losing his mom and just um, someone that he he deeply adored. Mm -hmm. and jesus is there because and jesus is there um you know i'm a man of faith and i i just i i fundamentally believe that i can do all things through christ who strengthens me and i want to just i just want to i want wisdom you know every, in fact my prayer my core prayer is to ask for knowledge wisdom and understanding so I, I would want to have that conversation with Jesus. And who are the other two people sitting at the table with Jesus and Abraham Lincoln and you? Oh, all right. So someone, I'll choose someone present. Yeah, I, I would want to have, I want to have Oprah at the table. Um, there's so Why? many questions. That just the... I I think she's just so thoughtful in her search for 
um, understanding of who she is as as a woman, as a creator, as an inspiration. I think there's, and that, you know, when we think about the Soul Sundays or the book club, I think all of that is connected to a sense of curiosity of self, right? And I think when we have a deeper curiosity of self, it helps us to connect with others. And I, I see that in that exploration through the work that she's doing. And she has, she has very uh, openly with us, transparently with us, shared her journey from fear to curiosity about yes. her. And I, you talked earlier about the importance of, you know, appreciating curiosity and not yeah. falling into fear. I think yeah. that she, she would fit very well at your table. Um, and I think also she has such a curation of wisdom and knowledge that has been mm -hmm. shared with her. We bring everything and everybody we've experienced with us to the table figuratively. I think she could literally yeah. add a lot. I agree with you. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> That's right. And you and got then, one more person. <clears throat> the last the the okay person. Uh <laughs> I would um I will, this might be a, a random one, but I would want to have, I would want to have Whitney, Whitney Houston at the table. Mm -hmm. It's because of the, this, this, she was incredibly talented and to, you know, for, for someone at her age when that she was young, inspiring people with her music, but also as a strong black woman who was performing and creating at a time where there was really not a lot of diversity in music, a lot of diversity in production and creation. And she just showed the world what, you know, a strong black woman can do on the stage and do it to a level that we haven't seen. Um, I want to have her at the table that what is that confidence, that courage that pushed her to get on that stage so young? Um, and then lastly with her also is that, you know, how do you navigate and how do you navigate the challenges of, you know, when the world is coming down at you and you say that I need to pause and take care of myself. Um, I think it's just there's a there's a lot that she was dealing with, and you know, it's a lot to ask from her. But to have the conversation of, you know, how did you how did you really go about the steps of saying I want to I want to take care of myself and then be able to share with the world? Uh, and I think you know, I, I I sometimes I feel bad for superstars and all the folks that you know we 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 put in a limelight because they're also human beings um and putting them understanding them as human beings first uh, given that humanity so that they can also be who they are to themselves before they give and share their talents with the world yes 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 what a dinner wow yeah. <laughs> what a dinner <clears throat> yeah. uh daniel let's go two for four yeah you talk about Whitney, that's a brilliant transition because uh, share with us now, uh, which four artists you're listening to, musical, yes. and why? 
All right, four artists I'm listening to. Okay, um, well, I talked about Whitney. <laughs> My Is she one you're listening to right now? Um, right now, not necessarily Whitney, but I'm always though, I'm always listening to Andrea Bocelli yeah. and Celine Dion. Um yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I went I went to Andrea Bocelli's concert uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, and it was literally watching mastery uh, and excellence in real life. You got I, me ready to jump off of this sofa, <laughs> I'm telling you. Oh yeah, have you have you gone to his concert? I'm not. I'm not oh to be gosh. there live and oh. It was incredible. And we were fortunate to get close enough seats that I was like, oh my God, Andrea Bocelli. And to, you know, he stands and perform with his voice and he just lets it out. And that that was that's incredible. So I listen to Andrea Bocelli all the time. Um another artist though that I'm uh, I'm starting to spend more time is is <laughs> this is a uh, Called his name Fireboy DML. He's a um, you know Afrobeats artist, um, young and just really creative. And I think his music is fun. Um, you know, I'm trying to continue to explore more of my culture. Even though I was born in Ghana, you know, I came here so young that I, I think there's still parts of my culture that I want to go back and explore and and dive into. And I I do that through music. So do, Afrobeats. Do you get to go to Ghana though? Have you visited frequently? Yeah, I've gone back. I've gone back uh, multiple times. Last time I was there was 2019, right before COVID. And I've tried, I tried to go in uh, in 2021, but the day before my flight, Omicron um, caused the borders to shut down. So, but I do plan to go back again this year. Okay, so I'm going to listen to Fireball Kelly. Listening for what you listen for, what will I be listening for? So with, with Fireboy, it's... So he has some, the rhythm that he does sometimes is connected to the history of, um, of Afrobeats, right? There's a, and part of the history is called High Life. High Life, actually my mom loved High Life. But mm -hmm. High Life was, you know, one of those early, early jazz kind of right. movements and think connect mm -hmm. to, to Afrobeats. So when you're listening to Fireboy, it's as if you're listening to, you know, part of the, Old He's kind of old school, kind of taking he, it old school. Yeah, he infuses mm -hmm. that with with you know modern Afrobeats, and I love mm -hmm. that. And did you didn't tell us why Celine Dion? Uh Celine, <laughs> um, you know, uh, you know, Celine's Celine is a special, really, really special one because I, I, you know, I've been talking about my mom a lot, but Celine was my mom's favorite artist, yeah, and. Yeah. We listen to Celine Dion all the time, all mm -hmm. the time. So, you know, yeah, and I still do. You know, when people ask me who's my favorite artist, Celine comes to the top and they're like, Celine Dion. Like, absolutely, Celine Dion. Um, but I love Celine Dion. And then who's the fourth artist? Oh, let's see, fourth artist. I've, I've always been in, uh, well, I've always been a big Jay-Z fan. Um, and in fact, so I, and, you know, we know we, people say that Jay-Z is, you know, the greatest of our generation for, uh, you know, when it comes to hip hop music. <clears throat> and I wanted to challenge that. Like, I mean, people say it, but do I really believe that? I don't want to just be on a bandwagon. So 
I spent the summer and listened to every song, his whole catalog, and kind of did my own research. And I was like, absolutely, this guy is the greatest <laughs> that we have seen. And you see the progression of even how excellent he got throughout his life. Um, yeah, so Jay-Z, you know, musically is, I think, is super talented and also as an entrepreneur in, in everything that he does. But yeah, Jay-Z is one of, is up there for me. Wow, we're going to share your playlist, though. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. Hey, how Let's... about four books that you recommend to our uh, family and why? <clears throat> yeah. Uh, These are your must-reads. These are your must-reads. Must-reads, must-reads. Mm -hmm. First book, I I mean, I'm a, again, I'm, I'm a, all right. First book that I'll say is read Team of Rivals by mm -hmm. Doris Kern Goodwin. I love Doris Kearns Goodwin. I learned about her when she did uh, the uh, book on the Kennedys. That's how I uh, learned her. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. was, any any book that she has written, I would recommend reading. Mm -hmm, she's, mm -hmm. she's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. um, the other book that I'll recommend, let's see, there's a book, Titan, about John D. Rockefeller, I thought was really interesting. Um, because I, I enjoyed that because as a business, as a, as a company builder, you know, I want to learn from the foundations of how people build their businesses. Um, that, that was excellent. Um, a book that I also enjoyed is driven from within by about Michael Jordan. Yeah. And for, for me on that book is just the emphasis on practice you know, that Michael Jordan is known for his greatness on the court, you know, during game time. But through that book, I actually realized that Michael enjoyed practicing more than he enjoyed playing. Like Kobe. Like Kobe. Like Kobe. Yeah. Kobe was practicing the day after he retired. <laughs> that's right. And I was like, that's that's incredible to know. And he talked about how, you know, practice is you know, kind of, you know, kind of building in a dark and continuing to refine, but it's not just for the game, it's for you. Mm, you know, that's, mm. that's, that's, that's important. Um, And then the... He'd be, he'd be a good dinner he, guest if I gave you five people as well. Oh, man, he, I, yes. <laughs> he would be, Michael Jordan would be a great di dinner guest. I mean, people do kind of follow him for the fantasticness of it. But you're yeah. getting into the fantasticness of who he is. Yes, yes, yes. And I, I would give him <laughs> my seat and sit on the floor, like yeah, mm, yeah, mm, to just mm. to absorb that. Um, and then the last book will be the Bible. I think that's just foundational. Just got to have mm. that. You know, I, I, and the Bible not just as a biblical text, but as a source of wisdom. You mm. know you can open up almost any part and just get incredible just pieces of wisdom and nuggets that can transform your life. So I, that's foundational. Beautiful. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, so Daniel, what is um, in your mind, what are the four best pieces of advice you can give to our family? And if you're sharing mm. advice, if you're sharing advice that was gifted to you, please yeah. give homage to the author. Yes. 
my first advice would be, and this is this is from my mom, that everyone has a story. Take time to listen to it. And that that has been invaluable in my life about the curiosity. Um, yeah, that's that's been so helpful for me. The other piece of advice is, and you know, this is also a, a biblical one, but I think it's also foundational in everything. Is that you know that the greatest among us is the one who serve. So being of service and things, sometimes we perceive that to be great, you have to um, outwork and all that, which is critically important, but the core of it is serving, you know, and, and putting others first. So I try to put that into the work that we do at Visible Hands and, you know, other, other areas of my life. The other piece of advice that was really helpful was from one of my one of my mentors at Goldman um, was at a time in my life where I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. Mm -hmm. And I, and I went to her and I was like, Hey, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I want to try, I want to try something different. Um, what, what should I do next? What job should I get? And she said this, she said, don't worry about what the next job is, but focus on who you want to become and everything else will fall into place. Wow. That that is my framework of making decisions about career. And that's again has been so helpful. And it, it actually allows me to, it helps me to say no to good options, you know, where you can probably get paid more money or do all these things. Say no to good options and say yes to great options. So that's a really helpful framework. That's um, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, this, this, this has just been incredible. I, oh, I've enjoyed an the conversation so much with you. Um, what is your mother's name? Julie. Julie. Yeah. Thank you for Daniel. Oh, thank you. Thank you so mm -hmm. much, Ms. Janice. This, this has been, this is such an honor. I mean, I, you know, first time I heard you speak was at a Black BC event. I think it was the Black BC kickoff. And I was just like, wow, whoever this woman is, I want to get to know her. I want to get to meet her. And it's amazing that we're, you know, where we've gotten to connect and share this amazing conversation with the family, but also what you've done, you know, the, the roads that you've paved, it sets a platform for us say that it has been done it could be done and we're going to do it so thank you thank you so much thank you from my heart to your home thank you thank you so much